All right. It is Thursday, May 27th, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and we are back, ladies and gentlemen. I really appreciate you guys' patience while I was out dealing with medical stuff. Going to give you a heads up. It is going to be probably a shorter episode this week just because I have been dealing with so much medical stuff and I'm not 100% yet, but I did want to take the time to make sure I get something out there because it's been a while. A lot's been going on in the business side of the MMA world while I've been out, and I thought a big thing to focus on today and a good way to kind of tie in a lot of things that have been happening, you know, in terms of George St. Pierre, you know, not being able to go box Oscar De La Hoya, John Jones retaining Richard Schaefer as his advisor and seemingly being okay waiting out or sitting out for a year and waiting to fight, as well as market analysts looking at Endeavor stock price and giving price projections, price targets, and looking at some of the reasons why they have those, plus John Nash's great article uh, regarding UFC finances. I thought the best way to look at all of this was to really examine the UFC's competitive advantage, one of their competitive advantages this week. It will tie in to a lot of things. We'll have to do a little bit of a trip down memory lane to look to see how they got here, but it's going to explain a lot and also cover a lot of the topics I missed this past week. So that's going to be the main topic. Uh, we will dive a little bit deeper into, you know, again, John Jones's, uh, you know, decision to sit out and, and retain the former CEO of golden boy promotions as his new advisor and his management issues. Um, and, and we'll also dive a little bit into the market analysts, price targeting Endeavor at various price points with analysts giving their reasons and things like that. But I really want to focus this episode on competitive advantage, give you guys an idea of the strategy the UFC has used to get here. And it will probably and hopefully explain a lot of things in regards to recent activity from contracts to, uh, you know, financing and all of that stuff. So that's the main meat and potatoes of today's episode. Timestamps will be at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. The first thing I want to dive into today is the market analyst price targets for Endeavor's stock. The reason why is they specifically highlight the UFC and some capabilities of the UFC as part of their reasoning for their 12-month price targets, and I feel like that's a good segue into why and, and how the UFC has gained this competitive advantage, which pretty much all of the analysts mention in some form or fashion here. So this is from Market Watch a um, couple days ago, old article uh, that basically aggregates several analysts, investment bank analysts rating of a particular stock, and in this case, Endeavor. And you've got some mixed reviews here. So Overall, analysts are a little wary of how much Endeavor has popped since the stock went public, right? Came in at a price target of, of $23, $24 on the IPO. And then now we're around $28, $29 as of this writing or, or recording rather. Um, so it's it's a little, you know, it, it's up 26% or so, 25, 26%, which is great. But without you know, the strong financials to back it up, analysts are mostly giving it a neutral rating. So you've got, uh, let's see, JP Morgan analysts um, led by Alexa Quadrini saying, overall, while we recognize the power and Endeavor's platform, we acknowledge the company, company operates in highly competitive lines of business and its high leverage may limit 
mergers and acquisitions optionality, which is essentially saying it's very debt leveraged, which is very true. Um, and it's unlikely it's going to be able to continue to raise capital to keep buying up companies as it did before. I mean, keep in mind, Endeavor got to be as big as it is and got the valuation it got because it's really been on an acquisition spree in the past several years. So yes, while it is acquiring the rest of the UFC, it's unlikely it's going to keep picking up you know, some of these event platforms or these um, services that it has done in the past. So that is is a little bit of a um, limitation in terms of projected growth. Uh, and I believe they have it priced at JP Morgan still has the stock um, at a neutral rating and a price target of $34, which is, you know, 17% or 15% above the current price, something around there. So they're still saying it's going to raise a little bit, but they're not expecting it to have crazy growth in the next 12 months. Goldman Sachs is even more new neutral. Uh, they have their 12-month price target at $29, which is about, again, as of this writing, where it is right now. It has gone all the way up to around 30, 31, that kind of range. Um, so I, I don't know the 29 makes sense, honestly. I think especially once uh, Q1 earnings are revealed, which will happen here in, in a week or so. Um, I, I fully expect uh, there'll be a pop as long as Endeavor has been showing good revenue for the quarter, which it's going to be better than 2020 because things are finally opening up and the UFC has continued to put on good events, that type of stuff. So I'd imagine a bit of a pop. Don't know that I agree with that. Um, but an important reasoning for Goldman's uh, price target is their sum of the parts analysis, which looks at all of the factors that go into the business. So not just the UFC, not just their streaming platform, not just their live events. And, you know, their, their reasoning here is we therefore initiate with a neutral rating and we'll look for a more attractive entry point or greater visibility into upside to our base case forecasts through either organic growth or M&A which again is mergers and acquisitions. So saying a lot of the same thing of what JP Morgan did in, in terms of need to see some organic growth, need to see some more mergers or acquisitions in order to bump up the price target. This all makes sense, right? Um, if you read John Nash's article or if you find this article on MarketWatch, um, you know, the UFC right now is making up a ridiculous amount of the... EBITDA or earnings before interest tax depreciation and all that stuff um, of Endeavor. And when you have one property doing that, I mean, MarketWatch has it at 50%. I think Nash had it at 63%. I, I'm going to lean towards MarketWatch just because I would assume the analysts um, have a little bit more inside of the books. And plus, it's about a month later from when Nash uh, you know, put out the post. And Nash also uses Moody's and the Prospectus. And even admits in his writing, you know, he's making some assumptions here and there. So I think because of these later numbers and just the access that the analysts have uh, to some of the data, uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and trust their numbers a little bit. But again, same ballpark in terms of UFC being just carrying Endeavor and, and being the crown jewel of Endeavor's whole portfolio right now. But when you're looking at 2019, there were still a lot of losses, right? As I've brought up in several other videos. And 
yes, things will get back to normal, but you can't expect them to get back to 100% normal even in the next six months, I'd imagine. Maybe 90, 95%, but there's still going to be a little bit of a lag. And that's going to hurt Endeavor where they need to either, you know, merge or acquire another company or find some way from to generate more organic growth. In this case, probably the UFC or one of their other you know, sports-owned properties or streaming properties. So it all makes sense why most of these analysts are, are giving it the neutral rating. I think UBS has it at, a, let's see, $33. Uh, Morgan Stanley has it at a $30 price target, all around the same area. There are a couple of very bullish analysts, though. Um, let's see here. I think one bullish analyst, yes, Benjamin Swinburne, um, or Swinburne, rather, sorry, um, expects, is, is really bullish on the UFC and expects both to generate EBITDA growth in the high single digit to low double digit rate range in the midterm. And that's UFC and William Morris, which is the talent agency, right? Representation for athletes, all that stuff. He, and I quote, the UFC benefits from scarcity value given its global appeal and the secular trends in live sports. It is also a business with healthy top-line growth and substantial cash generation. Now, the main thing I want you to take from that line is the UFC benefits from scarcity value. That's huge. And that's going to segue into the competitive advantage section here in a second, because that's a very true statement. and. When you have that scarcity value, it, it's hard to lose it. And we'll dive into that more in a little bit here. But I want you to focus on that, and I'll, then I'll explain why in a little bit. You also have other analysts, uh, Randall J. Connick and Anna Glassigen. You know I'm bad at pronouncing names. I will try harder. Uh, but uh, sending out, you know, a note that says, you know, with the wide-reaching spokes of its content flywheel e.g. sports operations and advisory, events and experience management, media production and distribution, client representation, et cetera, et cetera, for clients and owned assets, i.e. the UFC, Endeavor is a media powerhouse. And they also highlighted the scarcity value that makes the UFC attractive. UFC has more followers than the NFL, they wrote to clients. Plus, this asset demonstrates the full utilization of the platform. Endeavor benefits from representing fighters, marketing and licensing deals, event management, and direct-to-consumer distribution such as Fight Pass. That's also a very big, big point. Say it again. This asset, which they're talking about the UFC, demonstrates the full utilization of Endeavor's platform. Endeavor gets to represent the fighters. They get their marketing and licensing deals to help out, again, with fighters as well as the promotion, make more money. Event management, of course, with their you know live events and their live event companies and live event experiences can use that. And direct-to-consumer distribution with Fight Pass. That's major because they are correct in that entire analysis there. The UFC is able to leverage all of Endeavor's different business units and brands into one cohesive platform. 
And that is only going to help the company out as they continue to, you know, pay down some of this debt and fight their way back from being so high debt leveraged. And the UFC is growing in popularity in, in, in some respects, and we'll cover that a little bit here in a minute. But it's a way for them to have one product that brings all of their acquisitions, or at least the, the major players of their acquisitions and business units together. You can run tests, you can you know, generate revenue, and that then leaps over into their other events because they're able to see exactly how well, for example, live events go at the UFC and pitch that to NFL, NBA, MLB, UFC Fight Pass for distribution. That helps them refine their Endeavor streaming product more and more, gives them a huge name that then they can point to and say, look at what we're able to do. Look at how many users are you know currently logged in and, and pay for our service how about we go ahead and add a couple of things you know you want to be on our streaming platform all that talent representation i mean you go out and represent some of the biggest fighters in the world through william morris that's only going to help with synergistic effects in terms of their representation of clients in other sports right if i'm in football and i'm trying to decide who to go to and i'm a big mma fan which we've seen several different, you know, sport athletes be fans of MMA. And then they see that, oh, these guys are representing, you know, and this isn't the case right now, but let's say one day they're representing a Conor McGregor type or, you know, a John Jones type. That could be a big selling point for them. It's, it's a great synergistic opportunity for Endeavor to own all of the UFC. And I think that the price target is is right in terms of what a lot of analysts are saying. As I've mentioned before, Endeavor's financials have been pretty rough. Um, the UFC is really holding the entire thing up together, but there's a good chance it's going to grow. The most bullish estimate we have here is a price target of $40 that has an upside scenario of 50 per share. Maybe. I don't know that that would happen in the next 12 months, though. I think that could be a couple of years down the line to really see, you know, how the rest of their business units perform in the post-COVID world. But I am more aligned with the $34 price target or higher because of that UFC upside and the UFC being such a huge opportunity for them. So that's my thoughts on the Endeavor um, market analysts price targets as i mentioned earlier there will be you know endeavor uh earnings call here i believe on june 1st or june 2nd so um, i'll make sure to hit that in next week's episode because i think by then it should line up even if i have to delay a day um, i may do that and let you guys know ahead of time but yeah we'll see exactly where it goes next i want to talk about the ufc competitive advantage now this is going to help explain where the UFC came from, how they got to this huge valuation, and what the market analysts are talking about when they're rating Endeavor and they're talking about UFC's scarcity value. So we've got to do a little bit of a crash course in corporate strategy here. So let's do that quickly. What is a competitive advantage? Well, that's something that gives you an edge over, you guessed it, your competition or competitors. It is almost always made up of three elements, 
out of a possible four. The three elements that make up a competitive advantage are value, asymmetry, and then either or cost dynamics, which is more about you know making a particular product or selling the service at a much lower cost and getting greater margins, um, or being able to use cost dynamics to scale to a particular way and gain more market share. And we're not going to focus so much on that, even though the UFC certainly has some of that now. Um, instead, we're going to focus on scarcity. So what are each of those elements? Value. Value is simple. That is the product, service, the offering that a customer gets, right? Pretty straightforward. If the UFC puts on live fights, the value is, you know, being able to watch these high-level competitors compete at home through ESPN Plus or at a live event or buy my merchandise and my favorite fighters. It's, it's the entertainment value of the UFC in this particular case. Then we talk about scarcity. Now, scarcity is not... Well, let me put it this way. Scarcity is about how available something is not to just your business, but to the world, right? So a good thing to think about is gold, right? Gold is a rare, precious metal. And or, or if you want to look at crypto, even let's let's go that route, because that's, you know, blowing up. There's a finite amount of Bitcoin. Right. That's the whole thing. Like only so much can be mined. Same with Ethereum, all of these. And as scarcity goes up, where more people own these Bitcoins, so there are less available in the actual world, drives the price up and all that. Right. Scarcity is the amount of something that is available to the entire world. So to you and your competitors, it, it's the human race, even you could say. It, it's not how much something is available to you or how much it is available to the competitor. It's the bigger picture of it all. Where asymmetry comes in, the third and final element, that is more about access to something that is scarce that either you have or your competitor has. So asymmetry, for example, is let's say I am a carpenter and I, I you know, basically make and sell handmade furniture, wooden furniture. And I say I'm the best in the world. My competitors all say it's the best in the world. Okay, it's fine. But I have access to a very special lumber that, you know, really good wood. It, it lasts 10 years longer on average than all of my competitors would. It, it's some crazy special wood and it's whatever. I have access to it, let's say, because my brother owns 700 acres of this particular lumber and you can't find it everywhere, right? It's, it's this particular tree is kind of rare. My brother owns 700 acres of it and is regrowing it. It's super fast regrowing. I know we're taking a lot of assumptions and, and you know, give me some leeway here, <laughs> but I essentially have access to it because my brother's like, yeah, you can buy it for me and I won't sell it to your competitors. And it lasts much longer. It's better quality, all that stuff. That's an asymmetry where there's only so much that exists in the world, right? That's the scarcity 
of it. It's a pretty scarce thing, let's say. But the asymmetry is, is that I have access to that scarce, whereas my competitors don't. That is a, in sum total, scarcity value competitive advantage. So what are they talking about and why am I bringing this up? And when I say they, I mean the market analysts when they say scarcity value for the UFC. Well, you got to go all the way back to, you know, the beginning of the UFC where obviously held a lot of events, you know, had all of the issues about it being illegal, um, finally got things turned around with the ultimate fighter. But then as things turned around for the UFC, they still had competition at that point, right? Still had Strikeforce, still had Pride, had WEC. Plenty of good promotions with good fighters. And the UFC had some big name fighters, had some, you know, you know, had, had promotion, all that type of stuff. But people forget that the UFC was not always the dominant player in the space. I mean, at first, I believe it was Pride who had more of the MMA share overall. The way that they ended up getting this competitive advantage, which has since led them to being the number one MMA organization in the world, and it is highly unlikely they will be unseated anytime soon, if ever, is they went through and they acquired several of these promotions, specifically looking for their top 10, top five fighters. That's the scarcity. Right. And, and there is a piece, um, I think it's either Nash or it's Paul Gibbs who did a piece on this a while back. I want to say Nash. I'm talking about how the UFC strategy going into this, as they grew from, you know, surviving after the Ultimate Fighter aired to, you know, continuing to grow and get this massive growth and all this, they went out and they got the best fighters in the world and they got access to the best fighters in the world, gave them really good terms, but also locked them in. And we'll get to that in a minute. As they acquired more and more of the best fighters in the world, as they acquired promotions like Pride, like Strikeforce, like WEC, that leads them to have a greater asymmetry over new entrants to the market like Bellator or One Championship because they have greater access to the scarcity, which is the top fighters in the world. And we see this all the time, right? Um, Chatrice Yadong just recently said, I'd love to see a one versus UFC mega event. UFC will never do it. Why? It, it, it's super low reward, high risk for them. But why? Why is it low reward, high risk? It's because... If those guys in one championship end up knocking out or beating UFC guys, it only boosts up one championship and it, you know tarnishes this perception that the UFC has built that they own all of the top guys, that the best of the best find the UFC. Even had Michael Page saying, you know, recently, and that's Bellator's boy. <laughs> and he said, yeah, no, I think I want to step into the octagon sometime. Why? You had Michael Chandler come over. Why? Because the perception has been built 
that the UFC holds all of the best fighters. And in reality, they hold a lot of them. Not, not all of them, right? Obviously, you can think off the top of your head, Chandler, before he went over to the UFC, Douglas Lehman, Bellator, um, Cyborg, who is now over in Bellator. Uh, one championship has Demetrius Johnson, and, you know, uh, Andrea Moraes, who is really a sleeper in terms of how good he is and was that was showcased in his victory over DJ. I mean, you've got other promotions with elite fighters, right? But the UFC by far and away has the most. Look at the depth of any other promotion. Yes, PFL has Anthony Pettis and Roy McDonald and, and Natan Schult and Lance Palmer, who have been phenomenal. And we've seen some PFL guys make their transition over to the UFC, some with success, some not. You have top guys, but you've got a couple of them. Beyond that, you've got not filler spots per se, but not the elite talent. Right? Even Dana White's Contender Series, as we've talked about, which is is more of a cost dynamics thing where they're bringing in new Contender Series fighters and letting go of, of some middling veterans. That still is bringing in some of the best, you know, regional or, you know, feeder league fighters in the world. They're, they're trying to take the best that they can. And Bellator has done a good job recently of picking up some great prospects and picking up some other guys. PFL also, you know, Brendan Laughlin, I, everybody knows that he had is extremely good and could have been signed with the UFC. Dana just had an issue with his contender series fight, et cetera, et cetera. But the UFC is getting them more consistently. And the UFC has a bigger roster of elite talent, which gives them that asymmetry. And that's how they got to where they, they were, right? They bought out Pride. They bought Strikeforce. They bought WEC. And they took all of their champions and their top five guys or their up-and-coming stars. And then the rest, sorry, bye. Because all they needed were the top dudes. And now it's been so ingrained that it's in the brand. That's why you have people saying, I train UFC or, or do you watch UFC, not do you watch MMA? Right? You have, you have Stephen A. Smith and other, other people saying, mi misusing the acronym UFC in place of MMA in several places. Because now it's so ingrained in everyone. An example of companies that have done that before and used competitive advantage to do that before is think about Microsoft Word, right? Everybody has Microsoft Word. Everybody has Microsoft Excel. If you're more of an oldie like me or even older, you might remember WordPerfect. That was another, you know, system that was out there. And there was another one for uh, Excel, although I don't remember it off the top of my head, where Excel wasn't the main Thing. I mean, it was but for Microsoft, but you had real competitors to Excel out there. And you had word processing competitors out there. But now, all you know is, oh, Microsoft Word, Excel. It, it's, it's ingrained. You don't even say Microsoft. You say Word, Excel, PowerPoint. Because it's just expected. And they've created an ecosystem that everyone assumes that every other company is going to have those products. 
so that they can send a PowerPoint to somebody and all that stuff. With the UFC, they've built out the brand that way. They they have made for the non-hardcores, they've really made the brand appear to the casual audience as this is MMA. UFC equals MMA. And that all started back by obtaining the best fighters in the world and having more of them than all of their competitors. It's part of what the antitrust lawsuit is about, right? Now, when you have a competitive advantage, there are several factors you need to consider. But of course, one of the most important is time, right? How long will competitive advantage last? Sure, I might have access to this crazy lumber to make the finest wood furniture in the world. But if wood furniture is outlawed because we need to save the trees or something crazy, and I know, again, these are all ridiculous scenarios, but just bear with me. But let's say government regulation comes in and says, nope, that's outlawed. It's gone. Well, I don't really have an advantage anymore. Yeah, I have to switch to something else. Well, okay. Or let's just say that, you know, the market dries up. Let's say the people in the future just refuse to buy wooden furniture. They're like, no, it's antiquated. There's something wrong with it. I don't know. Also, competitive advantage out the window. So time is a big factor here. What the UFC also did, which is more so of the focus of the antitrust lawsuit and something the antitrust lawsuit is trying to remedy, that's something the plaintiffs want as a remedy is, is, remedy is contract links, right? Because the UFC, once you get into the top 10, top five, all that stuff, they will extend offers to you and they will bump up your contract and the number of acquired fights. You've got, you know, top five guys on seven fight contracts. That's, that's insanity, right? That's a long time. You can equate that back to record labels back in the day when you had, you know, uh, clearance, clear, clearance, Clearwater, Credence, Clearwater Revival. God, CCR. Sorry, I've been sick. Um, infamous record contract dispute where they got signed for 10 albums that the studio could, or I think it was 10 albums, it was a ridiculous amount of albums that the studio could cut at any point to say, yep, no, we're done here and cut you if they didn't like them or they weren't selling. But otherwise, they were locked in for selling a certain amount where they got something like nine cents per record sold. So even if you have, you know, blowing up your major star or whatever, you're limited to nine cents per record sold based on the contract and it's for X amount of albums. Sound similar? It should because that's what a lot of fighters get locked into. Here's your show money. Here's your win money for the next seven fights. Doesn't matter if you become the next Conor McGregor overnight, you've locked into this contract. And we've seen fighters publicly say, hey, I need to get paid. I need to renegotiate. And the UFC rarely box or they are able to, you know, renegotiate where the fighter gets something a little bit better than they had before, or maybe what they consider better. But the UFC does the analysis and says, you know what? It makes more sense to pay this guy just so we can reap the rewards of his stardom. So we're going to go ahead and do that. That's why he had McGregor renegotiate his contract several times. That's why he had Masvidal renegotiate his contract. That's why James Krause, you know, hats off to him because he stepped up on short notice multiple times and has used it as a way to 
gain leverage and renegotiate part parts of his contract. Smart move. Very, very smart move. But the UFC, again, keeps those top guys in these crazy long contracts. And if you're a champion, well, that you get stuck in perpetuity. Right? Champions clause. Doesn't matter if it's the last fight of your contract. If you defend the belt and you win, guess what? Triggers an automatic X amount more fights. And if you retire, a la George St. Pierre, you can't go out and box and do all that stuff. Why? Because it freezes the contract. GSP would have to fight out the remaining fights left on his contract in order for him to be free to go box Oscar De La Hoya. Pretty insane, right? But why did the UFC do that? Well, it keeps their competitive advantage in perpetuity. You've now established a brand, right? Look at look at present day. You went and you got all of these top level guys and champions. And people recognize within the sport that, hey, UFC is the best because they have all the top guys, right? I'm going to see the former Strikeforce champion fight the UFC champ. I'm going to see Pride champions fight, you know, got that all going when the sport was still growing. So amongst people who are following, they said, oh, the UFC has all the best players. We all the best fighters. we got to go watch that. And created that consensus. And then as they grew the brand out, now it's so out there and it's perforated so much into mainstream culture that they are able to hold that competitive advantage as long as they keep their biggest stars and their bigger names. And they lock them in. And sure, a big name can go ahead and lose several fights and then go over to Bellator or PFL or whatever, but that's fine because the value of that fighter goes down significantly if they go on a three or four fight losing streak, right? I mean, that's that's just how it goes. How many people are going to say, oh, Anthony Pettis is still, you know, a major player in the MMA space right now? How many are going to say, oh, he's washed up? He's got it done. He's, he's had a good career. He's now in the twilight. It's it's fine. He's out of his prime. Where do I want to go if I want to watch the best of the best in their prime fight? I know some of you are probably saying, yeah, it's not always true, blah, blah, blah. But I guarantee there's a part of you that instantly said when I asked that question, UFC. Because it's true. Because it's what they've done. It's their competitive advantage. And the thing about a competitive advantage is, is prior to what a lot of people believe where, oh, I have this competitive advantage and then a new company is going to come up and, and take it, right? PFL has got the new tournament format. They've got, you know, celebrity investors. They're signing Pettis. They're signing Brandon Lafleur, They've got Roy McDonald. They're going to come up and they're going to really, you know, eat away at the market share. But the truth is, and, and I've seen the reports on this in my day job as a consultant, is once you establish competitive advantage, you tend to only grow it out and have a better ability to grow that advantage as time goes on. These old dinosaur companies, you know, losing to the, you know, up and coming tech guys, that's not really the case. If you lose that competitive advantage, that's a different story, right? So if you lose any part of that nexus where let's say the value of the fights UFC now puts on just terrible production fights, it's it's just hard to watch. They're, they're throwing in 
01 and 01 guys in there. And it's just, you know, our moms off the street fighting a Lima McFarland type stuff. You know, okay, you lose your value. Then you've lost that trifecta. Or let's say, maybe more realistically, although I don't know how much more realistically, to be honest, UFC antitrust lawsuit works its way through and they get a remedy where now we have a contract limit. Doesn't matter how many fights you're signed for, all that stuff. It's two years max. And then you got to renegotiate. Doesn't matter if you're champion. Doesn't matter if you're top five guy. Two years max, and then you're out. And unable to renegotiate as a free agent, even if you hold the belt. That right there cuts off your asymmetry. The scarcity is still there because there's only so many elite top fighters in the world in each weight class. But your access to those fighters and your competitors limit to access those fighters are now gone. And that's what a lot of people have been saying. I know, you know, we, a lot of people have been like, how can GSP not get out of this contract? That's ridiculous. And, oh, we got to bring back a union and, and or, or the idea of a union rather and implement that so that, you know, fighters can negotiate these things or maybe the antitrust lawsuit will, will grant that remedy. Yes. All, all very good thoughts. The UFC will fight that tooth and nail. Endeavor's investors will fight that tooth and nail because the value scarcity those market analysts are talking about it is really about the asymmetry the UFC has over the top guys. And if you cut out that contract, that perpetual contract or that seven fight contract, and you make it, you put a limit on it, that destroys the UFC's competitive advantage. Now, that's not to say if that happened, the UFC would go under in a night or it you know, would end up becoming a shell of its former self. But that opens the door to competition to then poach some of the top guys. How how different would things be, right? Let's say judge orders, yep, no. Uh, rule that this is a violation of antitrust law, you know, effective immediately, contract limits placed on UFC fighters, and it's it's active, retroactively, put in place based on when their last fight was. So if it's over two years, right, that they've had this contract going on, they're now a free agent. How crazy would it be then if you have Francis Ngannou in the UFC, John Jones in Bellator, Israel Adesanya in the UFC, Kamaru Usman, PFL. Right? Be nuts. Is it possible though? Yeah. If if things go a certain way, yes. But then how long would it take if that happens, right? How long would it take for that perception of the UFC being the best of the best in their prime fighting to kind of die down? How long would it take for people to start saying, you know what? Yeah, UFC's great, but Bellator actually picked up a bunch of great dudes and they're I think they're better overall. It would all depend on again, paying fighters which UFC has a massive advantage there and a bunch of other things that that go on, but it would open the door for competition to take away that competitive advantage. And make no mistake, the UFC's competitive advantage has been their asymmetry of accessing that scarce resource, which is the best fighters in the world. 
And that's how they've built their whole brand. So when you talk about contracts, when you talk about John Jones, you know, saying, I'm going to wait, why can't he go box somebody else? Well, because the UFC has set things in place to make sure he can. Same with George St. Pierre. They've, they've done everything they can to keep their competitive advantage. And they will fight tooth and nail to keep that particular advantage because it's how they got here. Yes, there were other factors into it as well. There's always a bit of luck, right? I mean, the ultimate fighter, the fact that they survived, you know, was some luck there. It was it was good on their part, but there's always a little bit of luck involved. There's already, you know, that, that happens no matter what in any type of strategy. But their main strategy of hoarding those best fighters in the world is really what they have used to grow to the business that they are today. I feel like that will shift more into the cost dynamics dynamics type of aspect here. When we talk about, you know, going from the variable revenue to, you know, much more of a fixed revenue with ESPN deals and things, they're looking at that, obviously, more and more, they're willing to let some of these bigger name guys go because they still have that perception. But that is their biggest competitive advantage or has been their biggest competitive advantage up until now. So when you see analysts looking at Endeavor and saying, oh, it's the UFC's value and that scarcity, that's what they're talking about. It really is, is that aspect. If something happens that cuts contracts or UFC is found to be in violation of the antitrust law and has to pay back fighters a bunch and it's all this other stuff, that's a huge deal. That's a massive, massive deal for that particular reason. So I hope that's all made sense. If you have any questions about competitive advantage and uh, what I've laid out here from corporate strategy of the UFC, let me know. But again, that's how the UFC got here. And that's what, what they'll still continue to do, even though they'll let some guys go, as long as they still hold the perception and they still have enough of the top fighters which as their perception has grown to the casual audience, they can have less to maintain it. That's what they're going to keep doing. They're going, that's part of their strategy to fight the antitrust lawsuit is no, we're letting guys go. No, we're paying out fighter contract, all this stuff. We're not, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? Because they know if they lose that contract guarantee, essentially, that keeps the best guys around, they know they're screwed. Part of the reason Dana didn't do Zufa boxing, right? He didn't like the margins, all this stuff. It's it's look at the lender presentations, go read up on some of Nash's articles in terms of trying to keep fighter costs at 20% or lower. Go look at the market watch article and some of the other things where analysts point out that that value scarcity and being able to generate the revenue that they do, which is at the expense of the fighters, you know, go read that stuff. And, and, and hopefully this will help it, you know, click for everyone that has been a little bit about thinking, oh, well, contracts are different than, you know, the UFC making money for Endeavor and all that stuff. Nope. Nope. All revolves around that single competitive advantage. So that's how the UFC got there. And that's where they are now. Last thing I want to hit on real quickly is John Jones, um, retaining Richard Schaefer as his advisor. Now, Richard Schaefer is the former CEO of Golden Boy Promotions, which is a very big deal. 
And this is something that John's been cryptically, you know, tweeting about saying he's going to take things to the next level, give birth to something, uh, you know, classic John Jones. Um, and, and Dana White's response to Jones retaining Schaefer is that he respects him and that it's a, you know, good relationship and all of that stuff. This goes back to what we just talked about with competitive advantage and scarcity. Jones is willing to wait and sit out. And he's obviously trying to go in a different direction with his management and advisor in the hopes that he'll be able to gain more leverage over the UFC and negotiate a better deal for him fighting Francis Ngannou, Stipe, whoever at heavyweight. This is a great example, though, of where the UFC's competitive advantage is so strong that Jones really doesn't have much leverage at all. And there's not much he can do, right? Because again, he's locked in to that contract with the UFC. He can't go fight in a different MMA promotion. He can't go box unless the UFC says, yeah, go ahead and do that. Why did the UFC prevent GSP from doing that? Well, because they wanted a cut. And because they don't want, you know, Triller to get money that they'd much rather have GSP fight for them. And that's, again, hoarding that scarcity. Jones is part of that scarcity. He's a draw. He's, you know, undefeated outside of the Matt Hamill uh, DQ. And, and yes, uh, we could argue some of his more recent fights. Eh. But still, a big name in the sport. Outside of McGregor and Adesanya, probably the third largest draw. You have to see where Poirier is after beating McGregor, but, you know, and Diaz, no, I'd say he's bigger than Diaz. Jones bigger than Diaz. But the point of, of John trying to go in a different direction of management and, you know, saying he'll wait, the point of that is to try and force the UFC's hand to pay him more money, to come to a better arrangement. UFC doesn't have to do that. As I mentioned before, their perception, and rather mainstream media and, and casual people's perception of the UFC is that they are the sport of MMA. They are the elite, the elite. Yes, there's other MMA organizations, sure, Whatever. It's UFC. UFC is the best of the best. That's the perception out there. They only need, and by they I mean the UFC, only needs to retain so many top-level guys to keep that competitive advantage at this point. Right? Microsoft Word only needs to retain so many features, and people will still continue to use that and say, oh, yeah, Word, that's right. Somebody could come out with a new word processing, uh, you know, system that, oh, adds in uh, speech to text very well or adds in particular things that are better than Word. That's fine. Word doesn't care. Word is so well known and so universal that as long as they just, you know, keep <laughs> keep it functioning as is, and keep the main bells and whistles on it going, they're fine. 
They don't need to continually upgrade and do these things. Will they? Yeah, sure. They'll add a couple of things, but they don't need to be the best speech to text word processing service. They don't. Not at all. They're already too immersed and have so much of the market share. It doesn't matter. Same thing with the UFC. The UFC holds so much of the market share. They can lose a little here and there. Ryzen's putting on some awesome, crazy fight. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. PFL wants to do a tournament. That's fine. They, they are already so big. All they care about is growing to the level of the overall size of the industry. Right? So when you're talking about competitors and competitive advantage, again, and real quick side trick, and I'll tie it into John Jones here, but many companies assume that they're going to continue profits and all of that based on the growth of the entire industry. If you know, marijuana is booming, right? And and I have a marijuana business in, in a state where it's legal, and I'm making you know, $300,000 in profit. And I, I expect to, over the next several years, grow that two or three times. A lot of companies base that over the fact that, yeah, the marijuana industry is going to grow two or three times. And that's not always true. They don't always get that two or three times equivalent because just because you have a certain share of the market now, that doesn't mean you're going to keep it even if the entire industry grows. You may only end up with one and a half because a competitor has encroached, right? That's how it works. But in the UFC's case, they're so big. They're so huge right now that they really are probably able to equate what the entire growth of the sport and the growth of the industry is in terms of projecting out most of their current, current and future profits. And yes, if they lost John Jones, it would hurt. But it's not going to, it's going to be a drop in the bucket compared to the longer and bigger scheme of things. Right? If John Jones goes to Bellator tomorrow, they say, you know what? I'm tired of dealing with, with you, John Jones. Dana says, go ahead, cut him. Is that a big deal? Sure. You can have a lot of people be watching Bellator and, and it might eat into the UFC a little bit. Maybe. But. How much, right? When I say eat into a little bit, 1%, maybe market share, who knows? The UFC is so, so big right now. And Jones isn't that big of a star. He's, he's not Conor McGregor, where all of a sudden you're going to have a big subset of fans who are only going to watch Jones fights. No, most of the people that watch John Jones fights especially as his star has faded a little bit, are still going to want to watch UFC fights. Yeah, they'll turn on John Jones for Bellator. They'll probably still turn on UFC for Adesanya or for McGregor. Maybe not. I mean, there will be a, a certain you know overlap there where you have just pure John Jones fans who, oh yeah, I want to see Jones fight. I don't really care about the other guys. But how big is that number really? Right? This isn't Conor McGregor. Jones is a pay-per-view draw, but not to the size that he used to be. And he's nowhere near a level of McGregor or Rousey or any of that stuff. 
Would it hurt? Yeah, it wouldn't feel great. But again, with the fixed revenue they have from ESPN too, the UFC has far less risk exposure there. ESPN takes more of the hit, which still don't want your partner doing that. But, you know, that's that's a worst case scenario for them. In reality, though, all they have to do is say, yeah, no, we're not giving you that much money. This is how much you signed the contract for, and uh, that's what you'll do, or you can retire. We're not going to release you. We're, we're not going to pay you more. You can sit out as long as you want. That's cool. We've got McGregor. We've got Adesanya. We've got Poirier, who may or may not be a star after beating McGregor. We've got Usman. We've got Nganu, who's back now. That's cool, man. You do your thing. We got enough without you. So it's smart by John to try and use any tactics he can to gain that leverage, but it's not going to really affect the UFC as much as, as he thinks. And we've seen this happen before, right? We've seen GSP say, yes, I want to fight a certain person, and I'm holding out just for that certain person. Fans are clamoring, I want to see him fight, I want to see him fight. What happened? Well, he retired. Because the UFC won't do it. And until something happens that changes their, you know, contracts, if that ever happens, it's, you know, they have all of the main leverage. And they don't need that variable revenue like they used to. Part of what happened with Brock Lesnar, right? He was in talks to come back and fight Daniel Cormier. Ended up going back to WWE. And one major reason he cited was the fact that they wouldn't give him a guaranteed amount of money that he was looking for. He might have been able to negotiate that before the ESPN deal. I'm, I'm assuming, actually, he would have. And they would have, UFC would have had to kind of give in. But now, no. They don't have to do that. So, yeah, good moves by Jones, but is it going to make a difference? Don't think so. I think you're going to end up him seeing him fight next year because he will have taken less money than he wants or never fight again. I think it's one of those two options because as we know from the antitrust lawsuit, it's taking forever to get through the court system. I can't imagine that if he sits out and waits for something in that regard, you know, he's, he's older. I can't, really see him waiting seven years, gosh, or however long it will take. And then even if it goes the plaintiff's way, then he's coming back to fight. No, I don't think that'll happen. I think he'll either retire or come back and get paid less. And that's pretty much what you're looking at in that regard. All right, everybody, that wraps up this episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Thank you so much for watching. If, if you're watching on YouTube, um, make sure you hit that like button, subscribe, bell notification. If you're listening on Anchor, Podcast Addict, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, what have you, I love you guys. I'll make sure to get this episode up, uh, you know, ASAP because I, I know I can't give you guys the same type of heads up unless you follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or follow The Body Lock, which I highly recommend you guys follow The Body Lock or me on uh, Twitter if you're looking for updates because I have been posting updates there. But Anyway, uh, really appreciate you guys. Really appreciate you bearing with me while I've been going through this medical stuff. Seems to be mostly resolved. I'm on the mend. Should be all good. Uh, and we can hopefully expect more consistent episodes from here on out. And with that in mind, until next week.
get money, y'all. Get money.